From the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Naomi Wagner. I'm joined by podcast subcommittee member, Ryan Kuehl, who is going to tell us a bit more about today's episode. Welcome, Ryan. Hi, Naomi. Happy to be here. So Ryan, you selected the topic for today's episode. Can you tell us more about how this episode came to be? So as you may already know, I'm a genetic counselor that works in the metabolic as well as the newborn screening space. The newborn screening process is continuously evolving and has expanded greatly even in the short time that I've been in my professional career. So I thought taking some time today to discuss newborn screening, where it's been and where it's headed would be valuable. Absolutely. I think as you noted, because it's a changing program that no matter when a genetic counselor completes their training, there's always new things to say and learn about newborn screening. Exactly. Specifically, there are publications within the Journal of Genetic Counseling that talk about how the newborn screen has changed and where it's going from here. One of the articles that we highlight in this episode is called A Qualitative Assessment for Parental Experiences with False Positive Newborn Screening for Crab Bay Disease. So this article highlights some commentary that I feel like a lot of GCs in the newborn screening space want to know about, and that is what patients and families feel about positive results and false positives. So this article uses crab A disease and the center's experience with disclosing these results as an example to explore more on those thoughts. I'm excited to build upon this topic in today's episode with three awesome speakers who have worked on the topic of newborn screening from different angles and from a variety of roles in medicine. Our speakers will also be able to speak to the public health initiatives at the institutional, state, and federal levels. Of note, each of our three speakers today is here on the podcast in their personal capacity and not speaking on behalf of their employers. I got to sit down with Dr. Deborah Lynn De Salvatore. She is a physician that works at St. Peter's University Hospital in New Jersey, and she is the chairwoman of the Department of Genetics at St. Peter's. She is the director of the Regional Center for Newborn Screening and Genetic Services for Central New Jersey, the chair of the Metabolic Task Force within the state, and also is a principal clinical trial investigator and consultant for lysosomal storage disease therapies. She's best known for her work with lysosomal storage diseases, but she's also recognized nationally for championing newborn screening. I'm very happy to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So today in this episode, we'll be discussing the newborn screen and how it's evolved over time and how crab A disease is sort of this example of a changing understanding of what newborn screening is and how we do it. Would you mind briefly introducing yourself and sharing why newborn screening has been a topic of interest for you? So I am the chair of the Department of Medical Genetics and Genomic Medicine at St. Peter's University Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey. I was first introduced to newborn screening when I was in training, but when I was in graduate school completing my PhD, I had an opportunity to do some research in maple syrup urine disease. When I was in my residency at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine, I was able to trace eight generations of individuals in the old order Amish who had PKU, phenylketonuria, and was able to identify the founder mutation in the family as part of a research project that I was doing while I was completing my residency. When I returned to New Jersey, which is my home state, I returned as an attending in pediatric, well, as a fellow in genetics to the New Brunswick area. That is where I became introduced to the Department of Health in New Jersey, their newborn screening program, became a member of that screening program for the few disorders that were screened at the time. As a member of that program and as an attending physician on the floor in the hospital, I was very frustrated by the fact that we had infants come in in acute metabolic crisis and it was difficult to make a definitive diagnosis. The testing was very limited that we had locally, took a long time to come back. It made us much better clinicians, perhaps using our clinical acumen with some of the available screening that was in the hospital, such as electrolytes and glucose levels and ketone, but it was extremely disturbing to see these infants come in who often suffered a significant morbidity and unfortunately mortality because they were not diagnosed early enough to avert some of the complications. So I've had a long interest in 
trying to rectify that situation in the state. Yeah, certainly. It sounds like your experience with inborn errors of metabolism has transcended multiple levels of your training and your education. What has your role been in implementing and developing and executing the newborn screen program in your home state of New Jersey? When I first came to New Jersey, we had very limited screening. We were screening for four conditions, as well as we had limited mandated hearing screen only for those infants who were at an increased risk of hearing loss. Over time, it became clear that with advents in technology, we would be able to expand our screening with more limited technology in the sense that for the few disorders that we were screening for, we had some very basic, some might say archaic ways of screening for them using colorimetric assays and fluoroimmunoassays. Each type of disorder required a different type of test, additional technicians in the laboratory. They were very cumbersome, very time and labor intensive, but certainly as technologies came around, Around, such as tandem mass spectroscopy, it enabled us to screen for more disorders more economically. So in 1999, the governor of the state commissioned a group of expert individuals in the state of New Jersey to reevaluate the newborn screening program and assess the viability of expansion. He spent over a year and a half looking at different disorders using screening criteria that were well published by Wilson and Jungner. And we came upon a group of disorders that we felt, based on the technology that was available, were worthwhile to implement. I became acting chair of that committee, and the disorders that we had chosen, initially a limited number of them were implemented in 2001. Subsequently, we were able to add all of the disorders that we had reviewed quite intently over that year and a half. In 2001, the governor decided and the Department of Health decided to maintain the committee that we had formed in the form of a newborn screening annual review committee to look at advanced and technology to look at the possibility of adding even more disorders over time. And eventually that committee became an advisory committee to the Department of Health. And I served two terms as chair of that committee. I am currently the chair of the, and have been since the early 2000s, the chair of the Metabolic and Genetic Subcommittee, Newborn Screening Subcommittee for the Department of Health, as well as the director of the Regional Center for Newborn Screening for Metabolic and Genetic Disorders in New Jersey. Yeah, it certainly sounds like there's been a long road to get the newborn screening program in New Jersey to where it is today. Would you agree with that? It's been a very long road, but it's been condensed, I would say, in the last decade or so. We went from four conditions in 1990 to well over 60 conditions right now. We're not only looking at inborn errors of metabolism and hypothyroidism and hemoglobinopathies, but we're looking at other genetic conditions such as cystic fibrosis, severe combined immunodeficiencies, spinal muscular atrophy, plus some of the more complex and chronic metabolic disorders like lysosomal storage diseases. Most of the conditions that we initially assessed for presented acutely in the newborn period, sometimes intermittently, but often with acute metabolic crisis. Some of the other conditions that we've added may have intermittent or latent forms, later onset forms, and they may present more chronically, whether it's being through our review committee or through legislative means, the number of disorders that have been added has really exponentially increased over the last decade or so. As the advisory committee discusses the advances in technology and protocols that are published within the medical literature, what are some of the key considerations that you and the other members of the committee think about in order to assess the feasibility and validity of screening for some of these conditions that are, are being added to the newborn screen? Well, if we go back to some of the original criteria, plus some of the criteria that were added on a national level, you know, I think that there are a few things that still hold true. First of all, we're looking for a targeted population with a defined disease types and an understanding of the natural evolution of different conditions and whether or not there is a latent or a pre-symptomatic period or an early stage of symptomatology. We certainly want a suitable screening test with minimal false positive 
positives and false negatives. And we want conditions that have well-defined diagnostic testing that will help to resolve the issue one way or the other. We need to make sure that we have the facilities for diagnosis and treatment available in the state. We want to make sure that we have sufficient man and woman power at the state level in the laboratory to run the specimens in a timely fashion to follow up on abnormal results. We need to make certain that we have, first and foremost, an acceptable treatment for patients with recognized diseases and that that treatment works well and that the cost of that treatment, the cost of finding someone with a condition balances out any possible expenses on the medical care side if those individuals were not found, as well as we need to ensure that there is equity in the system, that people can remain within the state, that people have insurance coverage, that insurance will cover the treatments that are available. And at the same time, in looking at all of these different parameters, we are mindful of the fact that there is a national advisory committee that serves the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, and they advise on newborn screening. That committee is known as the Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children. And they have a very rigorous process of reviewing evidence-based decision-making for disorders that are brought to their attention for possible addition to what's known as the Recommended Universal Screening Panel, or RUSP. So when we are considering adding disorders to our panel in New Jersey, we are also looking to ensure that at a national level, there is agreement that these are disorders that we would like to add. It is always our hope that any disorder that is added has undergone a rigorous process of medical and clinical review in terms of the viability of adding it and having the right infrastructure in place to ensure that we uh, are able to respond to a, a positive result in a timely fashion and in an appropriate fashion. It certainly sounds like there's a lot to think about when assessing whether or not a condition should be included on something like a newborn screening panel. In your view, how does Crab A fit into that conversation? I will tell you that we had looked at Crab A disease back in about 2009, 2010. We had been approached by a family in the state of New Jersey who had a child and a grandchild who was diagnosed. And at the time, neither our committee nor the federal committee felt that it was an appropriate candidate for newborn screening for a number of different reasons. And it was very difficult for us because it was obviously very compelling testimony that we received from the family. What wound up happening is because we declined at that point to recommend adding it to our existing newborn screening, the family decided to approach the legislature here in New Jersey. And ultimately, it was mandated that we screen for Crab A disease in New Jersey, along with several other lysosomal storage diseases. And that is how it became mandated in the state of New Jersey. Again, as I said, I don't fault this family. I can understand in hearing their story how frustrating it must have been for this family. This is a family that had a child who had progressive neurologic decline, who was extremely irritable, and they were unable to obtain a timely diagnosis. And by the time they did obtain a diagnosis, the one treatment option that might have been available to that child was no longer a viable option for that child. And they were extremely frustrated, and rightfully so, for the time it took to make a diagnosis. I can't blame them for advocating on their child and grandchild's part, but the science is more complex. In her case, it would have been more straightforward had the testing been done. But for the most part, the science is more complex, and it makes it very challenging. And understand how parent and patient advocacy can have such a large impact on the advisory committee and what types of conditions are considered at a state level, certainly. Would you mind speaking to some of those considerations that the committee discussed back in 2010 that led them to put Crabbe to the side for the time being? What were some of those challenges in adding Crabbe to the newborn screen that made it something that needed a little bit more time to be worked out? 
I think that Crabbe disease did not meet the criteria for screening based on a couple of different things. First of all, there's a lack of consensus regarding the definition of early infantile Crabbe disease and later onset forms. It is extremely difficult to define disease types, particularly because of the lack of genotype-phenotype correlation. We see this today. Unfortunately, even with all of the testing that we do, we have a great deal of difficulty in defining whether or not somebody has Crabbe disease, whether they are pseudo-deficiency allele, whether we feel that there are pathogenic mutations, whether it's going to result in an early infantile presentation, in which case they might be a candidate for hematopoietic stem cell transplant, or whether it may not lead to a presentation until much later on, or whether in some cases it disease will ever develop at all. I think that the last thing that you want to do is to, to diagnose somebody who you think might have early infantile onset who really doesn't, and they undergo a hematopoietic stem cell transplant and succumb as a result of a complication of the transplant. There's a question as to how well the transplant works. Does it cause a plateau effect? Does it reverse symptoms? It doesn't. Does it slow down the progression, maybe convert it to a later onset form? What is the availability in the case of Crabbe disease of a transplant center? There are very limited pediatric transplant centers across the nation. Many children would have to travel out of state to obtain a transplant. What if their insurance didn't cover it? How does that fall into the equity equation of treatment? And what is the cost of the treatment? You can't put a price, obviously, on saving a life, but the overall cost in terms of the screening, the identification, how many people you're going to identify, and then how well the treatment is going to work. Now, this is what we're looking at today. Obviously, what is probably going to drive this in the future, even more so than today, is the fact that there may be new therapeutics available. There is a, at least one ongoing gene therapy trial for prep A disease. I'm sure others will follow if they're not already about to be activated. If you had effective gene therapy for prep A disease, would that alter your perspective on screening for Crabbe disease. That might. We have today another example, spinal muscular atrophy was added this year. It was mandated a while back, but added this year to New Jersey because of the availability of treatment. But I think the fact that even some cases where we've had disorders mandated to be screened for, but it's taken us years to actually screen, underscores the importance of the infrastructure of if you're going to screen for something, it's not just all of a sudden you have the analytes and the reagents and the equipment and the personnel to do this. It takes money. It takes time to put all of the infrastructure in place to enable you to actually screen for something. And where is that money coming from? Is it coming from the state? Is it coming from the hospitals? Is it coming from the insurance companies? Where is that money coming from? It's a complex situation. Certainly. And I think as conditions like Crabbe disease and spinal muscular atrophy are added to newborn screening panels across the country, it underscores this growing complexity that newborn screening is interacting with. Some people within the genetics community have been seeing this growing complexity shifting the paradigm of what newborn screening is and sort of that definition. I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether you think screening for conditions like Crabbe disease and other disorders that aren't classically termed as inborn errors of metabolism is changing the way that we think about newborn screening and the way that we interact with it. I think it is causing some challenges for a couple of different reasons. Number one is, do we have the expertise to diagnose, manage, and treat these complex conditions that are coming along? Historically, if you looked at something like PKU, it was not that they're inexpensive, but certainly if you look at the costs of formulas, if you put somebody on a restricted diet and add a special formula. Today, perhaps it's maybe $1,000 a month for a formula, depending on somebody's weight. Yes, it's lifelong, but there were people who were not genetically trained who were managing these patients. The dietitians are managing these patients. And it was a relatively inexpensive way to treat somebody, save somebody, allow somebody to live a normal, happy, healthy, productive life. 
when you now are looking at some of these more complex disorders where you really need people that understand the disorders who maybe historically were not interventionalists. As a geneticist, I consider myself an interventionist. I love diagnosing, managing, and treating patients. Not everyone in the genetics field is interested in being an interventionist. Some may go into the research aspect, some may go into the pharmaceutical aspect, but what we need are people who understand the disorders, the natural evolution of the disease, who are able to manage and treat patients long-term, particularly if they are going to be treated. We're running into a situation where we don't have adequate professionals to manage these conditions going forward, but also we have the cost issue. And nobody likes to talk about costs, but obviously if you are talking about hematopoietic stem cell transplant, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if you're talking about gene therapy, that may be a million dollars or more because it's a one-time treatment. How are we going to support that going forward? And it's wonderful that we have these treatments, but I don't know that our system is set up to handle these costs, particularly when, depending on the state that you live in, perhaps 50% of the population is on some form of Medicaid. We have certainly a number of uninsured patients or underinsured patients or charity care patients. How are we going to provide everyone with the same equitable solutions? How are we going to support this entire process? Yeah, it certainly sounds like as not only our panels expand, but the types of disorders that are included on them and their complexity expands, the complexities surrounding the newborn screen, not even the results or the disclosure or the counseling aspects grow with it. So Dr. De Salvatore, what are you hopeful for with the newborn screening program as conditions like crab bay disease are added to screening panels across the country? As someone who has championed newborn screening for a long time, my hope is that the original promise of newborn screening is realized, that we are able to detect babies at risk for morbidity and mortality from a variety of disorders, either before they become symptomatic or when they are in their earliest stages of the disease process, and that we can provide them with effective treatment that allows them to live a normal life, while at the same time reducing the cost of health care. Certainly, as newborn screening evolves, so do the treatments, and so do the complexities surrounding those diagnoses and those therapies that are available. Dr. De Salvatore, thank you so much for being on our podcast and sharing your wisdom and your experience with us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. After this discussion with Dr. De Salvatore, I got this impression that the newborn screen is really at a crossroads from the traditional form the public health initiative was designed on, and that advances in technology is making the newborn screen more and more complex. And honestly, it sounds like the infrastructure surrounding this new, bold newborn screening paradigm will require some support from allied genetics professionals across the board. Specifically, it makes me think of genetic counselors who could provide some of this support to the newborn screen that Dr. De Salvatore really digs into in this interview. For sure. While I was listening to Dr. De Salvatore speak, I was definitely thinking a lot about how genetic counselors can fit into the newborn screening puzzle now and moving forward. To discuss this further, we invited genetic counselor Amy Gaviglio, who has a wealth of experience in public health genetics, to join the podcast. Amy is a genetic counselor and public health genetics consultant working on national newborn screening issues for a number of organizations, including the CDC, Association of Public Health Laboratories, and Expecting Health. Now, I'll turn over to new podcast subcommittee member Leanne Jimmins and Amy Gaviglio. Hi, my name is Leanne Jimmins, and I'm a member of the NSGC podcast team. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Amy Gaviglio. She is a genetic counselor in the public health space, and we're going to be talking about newborn screening and specifically crab A disease. How are you doing, Amy? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being here. Could we start by you briefly just introducing yourself and your experience in newborn screening? Yeah, absolutely. I am a genetic counselor by training, but have really spent my entire career since graduating in 2007. So I think we're up on 15 years now, really in the field of newborn screening, as well as public health genetics and genomics. So working both at the state level and more recently now at the federal and international level. 
Awesome. And how did you choose to work in public health versus, you know, some of the more traditional genetic counseling roles? Yeah, I I really didn't go into my academic career thinking I would go this route, but I was at the University of Michigan and was able to take some really fantastic public health genetics classes during my time there. And it just really piqued my interest. And I started to see how much what we were doing more at the individual space could be translated to the broader public health space. And so that just really kind of lit the fire underneath me and and the rest is history, I guess. Awesome. And in what ways has the specific training in genetic counseling been helpful in this space? What ways has it been kind of difficult to balance those genetic counseling perspectives and these newer or more specific public health initiatives? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that genetic counselors are really poised and trained to to do a lot in the public health space, uh, whether it has to do with policy initiatives and communicating some very complicated information to, to individuals who aren't usually thinking about this, bringing together diverse stakeholders that may have very different goals in mind to kind of come to some agreement or some consensus on, on what a best path forward might be. So I think just that ability to to take in a lot of different viewpoints, translate that into an end goal, communicate complex topics, it just really lends itself well to public health. In terms of challenges or, or barriers, it's different to balance the needs or the wants of an individual versus what might be better or more suited or necessary at, at a more global or public community standpoint. We see this a lot in newborn screening um, where we're balancing a system, a public health system, which has been very taxed in the past few years with parent advocates and and these individual patients who are looking to really make a difference in their rare disease space. It can be a, a challenging balance, to be sure. In addition to patients and the family advocates, what other stakeholders are you working with? So what other people who may not have a genetic specific background are you having to explain these things to? Yeah, a lot of different stakeholders, certainly policymakers that can be at the local, state, or federal level. Different types of physicians or healthcare providers are are also really involved. And even now, I would say, as we think more into bioinformatics and and data analytics, some of that computer science and in IT space is also becoming, I think, increasingly important. So lots of stakeholders that span quite the gamut. With them, do you see a need for more genetic counselors like yourself in that space? Do you feel there are other genetic counselors in similar roles or you've kind of crafted a unique space for yourself? I do think that I've crafted a unique space in just how I kind of operate in terms of public health and in consulting at this level. But that being said, I'm starting to see more counselors interested in this space, kind of getting into the more public health, less individual clinic experience, and which is fantastic because to get to your first question about is there a need? Yes, there is absolutely a need for more of us. There are so many things going on in rare disease and genetics, genomics that are really starting to to look at the population level. And so I, I absolutely would love to see more and more genetic counselors working on public health related issues. I know this might be a broad question, but could you comment on some of those challenges facing newborn screening programs more broadly or where genetic counselors could fit into being the solution to some of those challenges? Yeah, I, I really think that there are a number of challenges in the newborn screening system right now, and I could see genetic counselors putting themselves into any of the spaces. So certainly education and communication around this program in terms of what it seeks to do, what it doesn't do, uh, what follow-up would look like if your baby does have a positive newborn screen. I think those are all things that haven't been fully addressed in in newborn screening, despite it being almost 60 years old at this point. So certainly that communication education piece lends itself well to genetic counselors. And I think is really, you know, very much the bread and butter of, of what genetic counselors do. There's a lot of discussion around equity and access for these patients that are identified through newborn screening. And I think thinking through what that looks like at a population level and how we can be sure that, you know, when we're we're mandating this program that we are living up to our responsibility and making sure that 
everyone has equal access to the downstream diagnosis and treatment. And then again, I think working with patient advocacy groups and disease organizations who are looking to get more involved in newborn screening is another great space for genetic counselors. There's just really a lot of challenges right now because we are growing so fast due to both technological advances as well as treatment advances while also being faced with public health funding challenges. So yeah, there's a a great kind of intersection of opportunities and challenges uh, right now in newborn screening. And do you see any specific challenges or questions for Crab-A disease or where does Crab-A fit into that conversation? Yeah, Crab-A disease is such an interesting almost use case in newborn screening from a number of different perspectives. So typically in newborn screening, we like disorders to be added to the screening panels using a pretty scientific evidence-driven process. But CREBE has been added to many newborn screening panels throughout the country using more of a legislative process where states are kind of told legislatively that they need to begin screening for CREBE disease. So that in and of itself, that intersection of patient advocacy, policy, science really has been highlighted with CREBE disease. CREBE disease does not fit kind of what we typically think of when we think of newborn screening conditions, the, the treatment is is still very much in progress in terms of its effectiveness. And so there has been some concerns around mandating a disease where treatment isn't where we typically see treatment for newborn screening. I think there's been a lot of research. There's been a lot of movement on how better to screen for the disease, a lot of work on, on treatments, including some clinical trials involving gene therapy. So This is actually going through the federal process right now to add to newborn screening programs. And I think it will be really interesting to see how it kind of all has evolved and comes together and whether or not it is officially added at the federal level. And for conditions like CRAB-A that don't fit these typical guidelines for other newborn screening conditions, do you think adding conditions like these is helping move towards health equity or it's raising more concerns? Oh, that is such a good question. Uh, Both. I think that newborn screening is really at a crossroads right now. And we're finding ourselves in this, what I consistently describe as this catch-22 situation where typically diseases for newborn screening need to meet certain criteria to be added and and mandated at the state level. But it's hard to really develop treatments and have early diagnosis of these children for certain conditions without newborn screening. And so we're we're kind of in this unfortunate loop that is very difficult to get out of. So there are certainly arguments on the side of adding these to newborn screening panels does address issues of equity because it essentially means that every child, at least in that state, has the opportunity to be screened for that disease. But, you know, I mentioned not every state is screening for CRAB-A. So then we start to see inequities more on the national level. If treatment access is is difficult, if diagnosis after the screen is difficult, then we start to see issues of equity fall apart as well. So it's really both. I think this is, again, where genetic counselors can be really helpful because I think we can see both sides and really try to come up with some solutions that makes everyone happy and, and moves both the science forward, but also addresses family and patient needs. And so you briefly talked about pathways to add the conditions. Could you also elaborate more on how then screening is implemented once a condition is added and how follow-up is decided if that's consistent between states? Yeah, absolutely. So once a disease has been added to either the federal recommended uniform screening panel or added at the state level, that's really just the first step because that really just gives the state the go ahead to actually begin the process of implementation, which can take quite some time. Usually it is held up by fiscal or funding constraints in terms of needing more staff, maybe needing more complex or new equipment to do the testing, you know, maybe work with new specialists who need to be contracted and educated on on what's going to happen in terms of the newborn screening process. So implementation can take some time just making sure that everything is ready to go to operationalize this at at a full population level. We are high throughput screening and we screen nearly every day. So we really need to make sure everything is ready and able to handle that capacity and the turnaround time needed for many of these conditions. In terms of follow-up protocols that 
is a great question. It's something that I think historically has been a little bit more overlooked, but is now being seen as much more important. So programs will rely heavily on the work of specialists or specialty organizations to try to come up with what follow-up should look like, what should be the diagnostic testing labs that are done after a newborn screen, what's going to be the recommended evaluation or monitoring protocols, what does treatment look like? So that's something that I think has been really, really important now, and especially as we're talking about newer diseases like Crabbe disease, where we can have a spectrum of onset. So American College of Medical Genetics does have something called their ACT sheets. Those are fact sheets and algorithms that really, I think, help programs in terms of understanding what to expect and what to recommend post the newborn screening result. And so from your role, since you are a consultant and work on larger projects at the federal level and with different organizations, could you describe more specifically what questions they're asking you and where you had influence on streamlining or helping them design these protocols? Yeah, I am very lucky to have a number of roles in this space. So I really get to have my hands in a little bit of everything. So some key work that I'm doing right now in this space has a lot to do with data interoperability and data aggregation at a national level. I think we've learned a lot from COVID about how siloed public health programs are and what a mess that can create when we're not sharing data better. So I'm doing a lot on kind of the national data collection, bioinformatics data analytics perspective. I also do a lot of technical assistance to state newborn screening programs on a number of avenues, but tends to be more in that education and follow-up space. So making sure that programs understand what follow-up needs to look like. They have documentation and protocols for how they're going to follow up on these cases. And then, of course, a number of initiatives in the policy area as well. So bringing together advocates and researchers and programs to think about adding new conditions, to think about increasing coverage of treatments. Yeah, I'm very, again, lucky that I kind of get to span quite the entire spectrum of the newborn screening system. And are there any of those projects or initiatives that you want to highlight? Any really interesting data points that you've been looking at? One of the things I've been really focused on in the past year or so is looking at equity and health disparities in newborn screening. And I think many of us, when we think of newborn screening, think of it as this fantastic universal program that is almost an equalizer for patients. And while that is often true in terms of it is offered to all babies in the state, it's important for us to understand that once we have results and once we call those results out, those patients really succumb to the health inequities that we see in in the healthcare system. So I've been looking a lot at in terms of things like after a newborn screening result, time to diagnosis and time to treatment and how that differs amongst different race and ethnicity categories, ages of parents, and and things like that. So really trying to look more at newborn screening as a system. Also been looking and working on a research project with Dr. Beth Torini out of Children's National, looking at the impact of false positive results on kind of longer term psychological impact and and parent bonding. So understanding a little bit more about the impact of our testing and when it doesn't end up being an affected case, what are the repercussions of that? Since there is so much variation state to state, I remember you mentioned, you said, if you've seen one newborn screening program, you've seen one newborn screening program. So when you're bringing such a large collection of data from such different systems, how does that look in comparing and contrasting or making recommendations when not every state has the same resources? Yeah, it looks ugly (laughs) and messy, I would say. This is something that I think the community has really been honing in on more and more. And and certainly as a passion of mine, I'm sure my colleagues are really tired of me saying the word harmonization (laughs) over the past year or so. But for me, this is really an important area where we need to become more harmonized. Newborn screening programs have historically been state-driven, and, and I think understandably so when you look at historically how newborn screening arose, but it is really causing a lot of issues, not only in what different patient populations have access to, but our ability to even answer questions about newborn screening because it is so very difficult to aggregate data across programs that operate so differently. Still at this point stand by my comment that if you've seen one newborn screening program, you've seen one newborn screening program, but I do hope if we were to talk in maybe two to five years that I wouldn't say that anymore. I think just really being more in line with each other is going to be important. And and again, I'll go back to COVID pandemic 
highlighted how big of an issue this is as well, because it made it very difficult for us to back each other up from state to state because we just operate so differently. It's a problem and it's something that I think the community understands is something that needs to be addressed. Hopefully we'll see some movement there. In addition to the challenges, are there any benefits that you see from having more state-run programs or any positives and reasons they want to keep that kind of state model going? I do think there are some positives. States are made up very differently in terms of their population makeup, as well as their availability of specialists and in medical resources. And so I think there needs to be some acknowledgement that states are inherently different and they have different resources. Being able to tailor your screening, your testing to your population is really important. And I think we've seen this with newborn screening for cystic fibrosis, where it's really important for states to have a CFTR variant panel that really covers their population. And what that looks like for New York is going to be different than what that looks like for Iowa. So I do think there are still benefits in terms of having some kind of state sovereignty around implementation. I think where the harmonization comes is just making sure that the decisions are resulting in equal access and equal outcomes to the patients. And do you think overall, are newborn screening programs able to keep up with now how fast technology and research is advancing? Why or why not? Do you see some states in particular that have been being a good example for this? Yeah, this is another great question. I think we are going to be hitting a crisis point in newborn screening and probably, quite frankly, public health as a whole with technological advances. For newborn screening, I think more even at this point than the technological advances, it will be the therapeutic advances that mean that more and more diseases have effective treatments and where it then makes maybe more sense for newborn screening to occur for early diagnosis and administration of that treatment. I think programs are going to be very hard-pressed to keep up with both of those. If we think about molecular technologies, very interpretation needs at a population level are crazy <laughs> to think about. We pick up a lot of variants of uncertain significance. Who's going to do those reinterpretations? Are we going to be using more molecular technologies to pick up some of these diseases if their therapies require a genotype for gene-targeted therapies? I think this is going to be difficult for us to kind of keep up at least utilizing the same models that we have historically utilized in newborn screening, it will be a time for us to really start thinking outside of the box in terms of how we keep pace with all of this while maintaining the integrity of a mandated public health program. We've discussed so much about connecting the legislation and the research back into what genetic counselors are seeing in clinic. And to me, that is the most interesting part of this conversation, because if you're in the clinical space, you often don't know everything that's going on behind the scenes. This is my first genetic counseling position, and I just happened to land in a kind of a split public health clinical, so I've seen a little bit of that. Do you have anything that you think genetic counselors as a whole should be cognizant of that you've learned in the public health space that you think maybe is not communicated in training Yeah, I think there's a couple ways to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what's going on in kind of the public health genetic space. Certainly, there are regional genetics collaboratives. So everyone state belongs to a regional genetics collaborative, as you know, Leanne. And I think that's an interesting intersection of both the clinical individual piece as well as the broader public health access and resource piece. So I think there's definitely interesting ways to get involved that way. Some states have rare disease advisory councils or newborn screening advisory councils. So I think they're usually open to the public and and just listening into that as well. I think there's a lot of intersection. I think many clinical genetic counselors don't actually realize that a lot of what they do is probably very similar to what we're doing at the population level as well. Even things like looking at trauma-informed care, if you're looking at it more insularly within your clinic, probably has applicability broadly as well. So I think there's a lot of ways that we can see an intersection and just kind of thinking more at that population level. Last thing I might want to pull out, just because we both know how few genetic counselors are in public health, is there anything that you think might draw them in or a way we can recruit genetic counselors in the space? Because we've obviously seen that there is a need 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think that it's still not an area that gets a lot of attention, unfortunately, because I do think there's a lot of work and a lot of benefit to having genetic counselors in this space. I will say I'm working with an organization expecting health, which is part of Genetic Alliance. And we've actually been talking about how to do more public health curriculum offerings for genetic counseling students, just because I think a lot of times when you hear about it, you think it sounds fantastic. It's just that you don't get that first taste of it. You don't get that first you know, time to think about it or, or presentation of it. So I definitely think that maybe we as a public health genetic counseling community need to come together and kind of brainstorm different ways to highlight this work and make it more accessible and bring people into this role. Is there any project or organization or any place where you think people should find you or a place people can look to for information if they're interested on learning more? Yeah, absolutely. I welcome anyone to contact me if they're at all interested in this. I love being contacted by people who are interested or want to maybe just check out a project, sit sit in, volunteer, whatever it may be. I always have lots of ideas of what can be done and not enough time to do it. So yeah, please do reach out. I'm also on Twitter at A-G-A-V-I-G. I'm posting all the time, different projects. So yeah, please, please reach out. Thank you so much, Amy, for joining today and just really elucidating the behind the scenes of newborn screening that we don't get to see every day in clinical practice. I think it's super helpful to know where our patients and families are coming from and also how they're being heard at that legislative level. And I hope everyone else gets to learn a lot from hearing you. Thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity. And yeah, I look forward to hearing from anyone who may be interested in more information. Within their discussion, Leanne and Amy cover some of the specific roles that genetic counselors could fill within relation to this evolving newborn screening program. For example, Amy mentions that variant interpretation and mass and initial results disclosure are both areas in which genetic counselors have expertise. All genetic counselors know how important that initial contact is with families for results disclosure. I agree that results disclosure is such an important part of the experience for families. And as we know, genetic counselors often have such important insight to the patient and family experience. So we'll finish today's episode with a conversation between another one of our new podcast subcommittee members, Jessica Dronin, and journal author Lakin Peterson. Lakin is a licensed and certified clinical genetic counselor who currently specializes in cancer genetics at Loyola University Medical Center in the western suburbs of Chicago. Hey everyone, this is Jessica Dronin, a member of the SGC Podcast Subcommittee, and I'm joined with Lakin Peterson today, one of the authors of one of the recent articles in the Journal of Genetic Counseling titled, A Qualitative Assessment of Parental Experiences with False Positive Newborn Screening for Crab A Disease. Thanks so much for joining us today, Lakin. Thanks so much for having me. So we're going to jump into some questions. Can you briefly introduce yourself and share how you ended up working on a project related to newborn screening? Of course. My name is Lakin Peterson. I'm a clinical cancer genetic counselor working at Loyola University Medical Center just outside of Chicago. And I actually graduated from Ohio State's genetic counseling program back in 2019. And this specific article is the result of my thesis project, which was about newborn screening for Crab A disease. I ultimately ended up working on this project because when I first came to graduate school, I was really interested in pediatric genetics and thought that's where I would end up in the future. And one of the pediatric genetic counselors in the area had put forth an idea of doing a thesis project about newborn screening for Crab A disease specifically. And since it fell into the realm of pediatrics, it instantly sparked my interest. And I had always kind of had an interest in the concept of newborn screening itself. And then as I spoke with her a little bit more about some of the unique aspects of newborn screening for Crab A disease, it really seemed like something I was interested in digging into and learning more about. Great, thanks. So before we dive into some of the nitty gritty parts of the article itself, can you tell me what you've learned through your background reading and preparation for your project about newborn screening for Crab A in the state of Ohio? Definitely. I think first and foremost, just thinking about newborn screening for Crab A disease in general, it really deviates from what we typically see for conditions that are included on a newborn screening panel. As part of my research, it became evident that there is very specific criteria that was developed back in the 1960s about what 
conditions might be recommended to be part of a newborn screening panel. Ultimately, some of the things that they consider when thinking about what conditions should be on the panel include things like having a clear understanding of the disease itself and its symptoms, having an appropriate and cost-effective testing method, and a readily available treatment that is actually effective. In Ultimately, over time, various states developed kind of different criteria to use, but Crabbe disease itself doesn't really fit those traditional criteria at all. We know that Crabbe disease has an infantile onset and late onset form, but differentiating between the two can be really difficult, which can make screening for it um, and actually diagnosing the condition difficult. In addition, the only available treatment option currently for Crebe disease is a hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, and there's really not a lot of available follow-up data about individuals who have undergone the transplant. So we're really limited with information about how well the treatment itself is performing. And then really kind of the most interesting aspect, which applies to the state of Ohio, as well as many other states, is that the state of Ohio itself is actually mandated to screen for Crabbe disease. And this went into effect in July of 2016. And it was really the result of lobbying efforts of individuals and advocacy groups that work with individuals who are affected with Crabbe disease. And so as part of this mandate, we actually, in the state of Ohio, the Ohio Department of Health was required by law to use tandem mass spectrometry as their screening method for the condition. And over time, and as demonstrated by other states, this has a really poor positive predictive value. And so the number of false positives for this condition were extremely high. And with that said, over time, then there was a lot of research and there's a lot of data out there for improved screening methodologies for Crabbe disease itself. But because of the state mandate and how the law itself was written, this actually couldn't be changed and it made it difficult to implement some of these improved technologies. And so at least in the state of Ohio, it was an issue about how we could improve the actual screen and the false positive rate when the law itself was really acting as somewhat of a barrier for screening. And so kind of in summary, the screening itself and what I learned in my research about screening for Crevy disease in Ohio is really complex and encompasses a lot of different aspects and things to consider as far as, you know, what should be screened for and included on a newborn screening panel. Great. Thanks for giving us that background on newborn screening in general and then how CREBE is so complicated, particularly in the state that you conducted this study in. Now we're going to move a little bit into questions related to your study itself. Can you start off by telling us how your interviewees were identified for participation in this study? Yes. So ultimately, the participants in this study, they included parents who underwent genetic counseling for their child's positive newborn screen for Crevy disease, and then were subsequently found to have negative diagnostic testing. So they had a false positive newborn screen for Crevy disease in one specific center in central Ohio. And all of the participants were required to speak English in order to complete the semi-structured interviews. And the parents were actually recruited during the time of their diagnostic results phone call by the genetic counselor that they met with initially. And so when they were called with their results confirming a false positive newborn screen, the study was introduced to them. And if they were interested in completing the semi-structured interview via phone, the genetic counselor actually set up a time for them to have a phone call with myself who completed all of the interviews. And I would call them anywhere from three to five days after their initial results disclosure. And so it was really soon after the initial event. And so it was very fresh in their minds about what they had experienced and kind of what had led up to that specific result in the days prior. So your paper highlighted some main themes that emerged from these interviews. Can you share a little bit more about your main findings? Definitely. So Through the semi-structured interviews and thematic analysis, there were three major themes that actually emerged from the paper. The first was improved understanding of the newborn screening process from a parent perspective. The second was the role of healthcare provider communication. And the third was the value of Crabbe newborn screening. And so ultimately, in thinking about the first theme, the improved understanding of the newborn screening process from a parent perspective, this really highlighted different aspects 
for information that parents provided throughout the process. And this started from the very beginning. Really, it became very clear that parents felt that they really were uninformed about what conditions were being tested for as a part of newborn screening and what the overall process entails. Many of them stated that they were aware that newborn screening was taking place, but they really didn't have any additional details beyond that. In addition, a lot of parents recognized and stated that they actually didn't tell anyone that they were experiencing this while they were navigating this process of being informed of the initial results by their primary care doctor or pediatrician's office and going to the genetic counseling appointment and waiting for the diagnostic results. They really stated because of the uncertainty, they didn't want to worry others. And so they were depending on their child's other parent and the genetic counselor and their pediatrician to act as social support for them. And then somewhat uniquely to Ohio as part of this overall major theme, they were specifically asked to tell us whether they were asked if they could opt out of crab A newborn screening in Ohio. And this is unique to the state of Ohio and is part of the state mandate itself. Parents can actually choose to opt out of crab A newborn screening while continuing to screen for all other conditions. Ultimately, within our study of the 11 interviews that were included and analyzed, only one parent had actually been informed that they could opt out of Crab A newborn screening, which really kind of just highlighted, again, this lack of information that was initially provided to parents about newborn screening and newborn screening for Crab A disease. With that said, it actually leads in kind of nicely to the second major theme, which was the role of healthcare provider communication. Parents were asked through the semi-structured interviews to really tell us about their experience from start to finish with the initial results, phone call or discussion with their pediatrician's office about the positive newborn screen for Crab A disease. And they informed us all the way through to the final phone call with the genetic counselor confirming the false positive result. Ultimately, in all of the cases that were analyzed, the families were informed of their child's positive newborn screen by their pediatrician's office. Ultimately, these experiences ranged widely. I mean, some people were left a voicemail telling them that they had a positive newborn screen. They weren't given any other information and it was left on a Friday afternoon and told that they needed to arrive at a different medical center for follow-up information the following Monday. Some people felt like their child had the condition and they were attending an appointment to learn more about crab A disease. And others were actually given fairly good information and really informed of the difference between a screening and diagnostic test and were given follow-up information about the result itself. Really over half actually felt that they were given enough information about their child's positive newborn screen and next steps moving forward. Ultimately, throughout this process, parents expressed a lot of emotional distress, primarily relating to feelings of anxiety and uncertainty. But they did report that their experience with the genetic counselor was very reassuring because they were able to provide them with more information about screening tests versus diagnostic testing, the likelihood of a true positive result for Crab A disease. And also they were able to provide families with a clear timeline of events for what would follow in the coming days. Overall, they felt that the genetic counseling appointment gave them more information and multiple parents actually stated that they felt much better leaving the genetic counseling appointment than they did walking in the door initially. And then thirdly, the final theme was really the value of Crab A newborn screening. And despite some of the negative emotions and emotional distress parents experienced, they actually felt that there is value in screening for Crab A disease. And many of the parents had been made aware of the one or very few true positive cases in the state of Ohio. And all mentioned that those families are individuals who can benefit from newborn screening for Crab A disease. So they did feel like it was something that should continue within the state. I will say there were some parents who stated some concerns with the high false positive rate, and that ultimately led to them having some suggestions about how the newborn screening process and the newborn screening process for Crab A disease could actually be improved. Thanks for going through those major findings that you had. So you said they had some suggestions for how newborn screening could be improved. Can you expand a little bit about what those were based on their experiences? 
Definitely. So parents had really different ideas about what could be done to potentially improve newborn screening or Crabbe disease specifically. Some parents suggested that they really needed more information on the initial screen positive results phone call with their pediatrician's office. In particular, one mother stated that she needed her non-genetics provider or pediatrician or the individual who called her from that office to give more information beyond informing her that they weren't even sure how to pronounce the name of the condition, let alone tell her anything about the condition itself. She found that very unsettling, understandably. So giving more information during that initial phone call was something that came up very frequently. In addition, a lot of people felt that there could be more information about the genetic counseling appointment that was going to occur the following day or within the next few days, because many reported that they did not have enough information about why they were being referred for a genetic counseling appointment and really why there was such a sense of urgency to have that appointment completed in the very near future. As for newborn screening itself, there were also additional suggestions. One father in particular who actually worked within the medical field felt that there really should be more information about newborn screening at the initial time of the heel stick. I know many parents reported that they were told newborn screening was taking place. They were given pamphlets with information about it, but none of them actually read them. And this particular parent felt that there could be more information worked into the education that parents are all already being provided right after the birth of their child. Another parent actually felt that this was something that could be discussed very early on, even prior to conception. She felt that there could be more information given during annual appointments for individuals who are of childbearing age and for those who are actively trying to conceive. So there was really a wide variety, but all kind of centered around the idea of wanting more information initially rather than on the back end. So it sounds like a lot of these things could be related not just to Crab A disease, but to a whole host of conditions used for newborn screening. Definitely. I think it's something that could very well be given kind of more precedent in other conditions. And there is also data out there for other conditions that suggest that more information is needed. It's really more of a question of how to implement that and how to actually get more information to parents when you're trying to weigh enough information with not having too much information. Yeah, it's a hard balance there. I find it particularly concerning that bit about them not understanding the potential urgency of having to go for that follow-up appointment. Definitely. What did you learn about the role of genetic counselors in this newborn screening process from the study? I think a major takeaway of this study was that genetic counselors are really uniquely trained to benefit families who are navigating the newborn screening process in general. We know that we're trained in genetics and rare disease, short-term counseling, and we're trained to educate individuals of many different backgrounds about complex information. And that makes us really well suited to actually provide this information to parents, but also to providers. And so a major takeaway for myself and the other co-authors was that maybe genetic counselors should be considered as being a first point of contact for newborn screening results initially for the screen positive results, or perhaps it should be considered that they should be providing more education to non-genetics providers about how to handle these situations, how to deliver these screen positive results. Really, I think the overall takeaway is that genetic counselors should be considered to potentially more fully participate in the newborn screening process. And I think there's various different ways that that could be looked into. So if you were to do a follow-up study or to do it all over again, what other people would you want to talk to? Ultimately, the rationale behind focusing on those individuals who had a false positive result was that they make up the majority of individuals who have a positive newborn screen for Crabbe disease. But I think a lot of the questions that we ask these families would be really interesting to ask those who actually do have a true positive confirmed diagnosis of Crabbe disease, or potentially even asking families who have an ambiguous result where it's unclear whether or not their child will develop Crabbe disease in the future. And I think both of those groups of people could provide different insights into their experiences navigating the newborn screening process. 
And I also think that with this specific study, it was a benefit that we were able to follow up with families in the short term because their experience was very recent and they were able to provide a lot of detail about what they had gone through in the previous days. But there also is a lot of data in the literature that individuals who do have a positive newborn screen for their child have and experience long-term effects from those results. And so I think it really could be interesting, you know, in the future, a follow-up study could actually look into that and whether there are those same long-term effects that have been well-documented for other conditions on newborn screening panels and whether those may be the same or different from those for Crave disease specifically. Totally understandable. I think that part about ambiguous results and we don't know if that person's going to develop a disease will be a really big topic coming up as we're adding more conditions in different states that the line isn't so clear. Definitely. I, I think too, Crabbe disease has kind of set the stage for some of these other conditions to follow a similar trend in trying to have the condition added to the newborn screening panel when they don't really meet the traditional criteria that most conditions do. So I think as you mentioned, this will continue to evolve and there will be more ambiguous results for other conditions and other questions to consider. I feel like this is really kind of just the start of starting to answer and look into some of these questions and expanding the world of newborn screening. It's an exciting time. Is there anything else about your project that you'd like to share with us? I personally have not worked in the pediatric setting since I graduated, but I found that working on this project and having the knowledge about newborn screening has benefited me even in the adult setting. I think a lot of patients ask questions that are either similar to or directly about the concept of newborn screening. And so having this background and thinking about how the world of newborn screening is really evolving and having some of that background knowledge has been really useful. And I think other genetic counselors, even if they're not working in a pediatric or prenatal setting where they might frequently be asked about newborn screening, it's still really relevant information to be familiar with because it is rapidly evolving. And I think it's something that all genetic counselors will continue to get questions about. And having that knowledge can be helpful in educating patients when the opportunities arise. And also even the opportunities for educating non-genetics providers about newborn screening. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for going through the ins and outs of your study with us today. Congratulations on getting your student work published. It's exciting to see when students have their research out in journals like this. And we wish you all the best in your new career as a genetic counselor. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to revisit and talk about this work. It was something that took up almost two whole years of my life. And so it was great to be able to talk about it again. So thanks so much. Overall, these discussions showcase that newborn screening is changing and becoming more complex. Genetics health professionals will be tested with the addition of new disorders to the newborn screen that break the conventional mold and require specialized care. And this could serve as a unique opportunity for genetic counselors to help support such a successful and important public health program. Yes, and we'd like to take a moment here to thank again all of our speakers and to remind you to read Lakin and colleagues' full article in the Journal of Genetic Counseling you can visit nsgc.org forward slash journal of genetic counseling that concludes this month's episode of the nsgc podcast series this recording is produced by the national society of genetic counselors i'm your host naomi wagner and we'll see you next time